Hi, I'm your host, Connor Byrne, and welcome back to That's What I Call Marketing, the podcast where you will hear from the leading lights in the marketing world and listen to their unique stories. In this episode, I'm chatting to none other than Paul Feldwick. Paul worked for over 30 years at legendary advertising agency BMP, later part of the DDB network, and became one of London's most highly regarded planning directors. He developed global strategic planning tools and training for DDB and helped found DDB University. In 2015, Paul released The Anatomy of Humbug, How to Think Differently About Advertising, which in a really accessible way charts the course of advertising and challenges the beliefs we hold and sometimes don't know why we hold them. In 2021, Paul followed up with Why Does the Pedder Sing, which Rory Sutherland says is possibly the book I would most highly recommend to anyone in marketing. Today, we cover so much, from The Honey Monster to Victoria Beckham, from P.T. Barnum to Rowan Atkinson. This episode is pure show business. So let's get right into it. Paul, thanks for joining me on That's What I Call Marketing. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Well, listen, Paul, it'd be great to just get a bit of uh, kind of a, a view of your background uh, in marketing. Now, I, I suspect we could spend the entire podcast talking about uh, your background, but it'd be great to kind of get a view of you know how you, how you came through the marketing world and your path. Well, um, I mean, it, it's not a long story in a way because what, what happened was I left university in 1974, which I know to most people now probably seems a terribly long time ago, and indeed <laughs> it is because it's getting on towards 50 years. And um, somewhat to my surprise, I was offered a job by an up-and-coming London advertising agency, which at that time was called Bose Massimi Pollitt. Um, it's a name which some may remember, many probably won't now, but in its day, it was a very, very successful agency and produced a, a, a body of work which I think we were very proud of because it was both kind of classy enough to, um, to win awards and be celebrated within the industry, but perhaps much more importantly, it was actually popular. Um, so, I mean, a lot of this, although not all of it, was driven by a particularly talented guy called John Webster, who was our creative director. Um, that's a name that I hope many people yes, will, will yes. still remember. Um, although other people were often involved in, um, in in John's projects as well, but he, he was the genius who tended to sort of pull them into their final shape. So, you know, this was the agency that produced... Um, sort of classic campaigns. Um, I mean, not all of them perhaps so so well known in, in Ireland as the UK, but um, the Smash Martians, the Cresta Bear, a lot of a lot of wonderful stuff over the years for Courage Breweries, including um, you know the Courage Best campaign and um, John Smiths, and um, and. It, it was a and the honey monster for uh, for sugar puffs that that was another one of ours. I mean, even at the time I joined, when it was still a relatively small and young agency, we had quite a long um, showreel of of predominantly TV work that was popular, famous, entertaining, and that was very much what we were trying to do as an agency. I mean, we. We didn't see advertising as a business of beating people over the head or boring them to death with facts that they weren't very interested in. Um, we had some kind of a hunch 
that it was much more to do with, um, you know, lodging something in their long-term memories and also making them like you. Right. And our chairman, um, or chief executive probably was at the time, managing director, Martin Bowes, the Bowes of Bowes, Massimo Pollitt, he used to express this very elegantly to us when we started in the agency. And he'd say, we believe that if you're going to invite yourself into somebody's living room uh, for 30 seconds, then you have a kind of moral duty not to insult them or shout at them. But on the other hand, if you are a charming guest and you can put a smile on their faces, then perhaps they'll like you a bit better. And if they like you a bit better, they'll be more inclined to buy your brand. And at the time, I mean, I remember this very clearly, but I sort of didn't entirely take it seriously because it was so different right. from everything that was sort of regarded as conventional wisdom in, in all the books about advertising and most of the clients' ideas about advertising and indeed all the researchers' ideas about advertising, which it was all about, you know, you have to have a proposition and you have yes. to get it into people's heads and they have to understand it and they have to remember it. And it's all to do with, you know, essentially giving facts and rational persuasion and so on. Um, so that was the background I started from. And, and having joined Bosmasini Pollitt, um, and I'll pass over quickly the first six months when I was an account manager because I wasn't very good at that. <laughs> but uh, they did then give me a second chance and put me into the account planning department. BMP, of course, was one of the two agencies that pioneered the concept of account planning, the other being JWT. And, um, and that worked out much better. So I, I ended up staying. And I ended up staying. And after about 14 or 15 years, I'd worked my way to the sort of the, the, the top of the planning department. And I, I became the head of the planning department. And around that time, just after I'd been promoted to that role, um, BMP, which had gone public some years previously, was then taken over by Omnicom, and it was merged into the DDB global network. And so that kind of changed the nature of the agency a bit. Um, I mean, there were, you know, in, a good, in good ways and bad ways, I think. But, I mean, it did actually create an opportunity for me to kind of go on to the next stage of my career, which ended up being a lot to do with the global network um, and was something to move on to after I head headed the London Planning Department. So I was one of a handful of people who um, spent a lot of our time trying to improve the quality of the strategic thinking and planning across you know, the whole DDB network worldwide, most of whom had no sort of particular strategic or planning tradition at all. So that, that was great fun. And yeah. I mean, I spent an awful lot of time on aeroplanes and uh, was young enough to still just about enjoy that. Enjoy. <laughs> um, and I certainly enjoyed, I mean, I enjoyed traveling and I enjoyed meeting people around the network. Um, yeah. And I met a lot of wonderful people, many of whom are still are still friends, though I don't see them as much as I would like to, perhaps. Um, so this got me into a role where I had to really think hard about, you know, how does how does advertising work? What what is strategy? And all those, you know, big important questions. And I'm not sure at the time that I got the answers to all those questions particularly right, but it kind of went on niggling with me, if you like. 
Yeah, yeah. And I began to feel that, you know, the conventional wisdom of, you know, how advertising persuades people by giving facts seemed sort of less and less adequate, really, to what most advertising was actually like. Um, and so, anyway, to get on with my, my career story, which is pretty short, as I say, um, about 2005, about 30 years in the agency, I decided it was time to move on. Well, indeed, they decided it was time for me to, and, and a lot of other people to move on as well, because we were now now in our 50s, which is far too old for people to be allowed to work in advertising agencies. Yeah. You know? and, and to be honest, I was, I was sort of happy to do that, and I was in a position to do that. So I, I left the agency, set up as a kind of freelance consultant, um, which meant I was kind of free to do a bit of this and a bit of that, and I didn't much mind what. Um, and and that, that went well enough. Um, but it also gave me more time to think and more time to write. And gradually, over a number of years, a book emerged. And this was a book called The Anatomy of Humbug, yeah. which I published in 2015. And that was my attempt to sort of set down in some sort of logical order um, the various, what I call mental models people have of how advertising works. And I start with the very dominant one, which I call the salesmanship model, which is yeah. the idea that, you know, people are persuaded by giving facts like a salesman who tells them why this product is better. And therefore, advertising is about communicating that kind of information and so on. And I sort of make the point that sometimes advertising does work like that. Yeah. And in certain situations, it's probably right to think of that as the dominant model, particularly in, in situations like direct response advertising, although not, not only that. Um, but also that clearly a great deal of other advertising doesn't seem to work like that at all. So what is it doing? Yeah. Um, and I put up various other possibilities. And the one I sort of went on to from there was what I called uh, something like, you know, subconscious um, associations that, you know, by showing images, by creating feelings, you make people feel differently about the product. You create associations that make them want it. And this operates at a, a less sort of conscious cognitive level. Um, but, uh, and that's why in, in the history of advertising, it's occasionally been sort of explicitly formulated and then rejected by people who called it the hidden persuaders and that sort of thing. So I talked a bit about that and the history of it. And then I said, well, actually, nowadays, there is an even simpler theory that's beginning to become more and more widely accepted. And this, this dates back to um, Byron Sharp's 2012 book, um, How Brands Grow. Uh, although I was familiar with this thinking from, from earlier because I, I used to know Andrew Ehrenberg, who was the originator of it. And, and this theory says, actually, the way advertising works is really terribly simple. It's about mental availability. It just creates, again, a network of mental associations. But the main object of that is simply that you will think of this brand more fluently, more often, in more situations, and other things being more or less equal. The more that brand is the first one to come to mind, the more likely you are to choose it, because we like things that are familiar yeah. And, um, you know, and, and they feel comfortable and so forth. So that, I think, um, I, I mean, and now I think more and more, this is, a, this is a very, very powerful theory and a very useful theory for, for clients who want to build brands um, to bear in mind. Um, and that's 
anyway, th there were some others. I won't go through them all if people yeah. if people are interested. Of course, this book is still available, and well, I would love them to read it. Yeah, it's a, but, it's an amazing book, Paul, because I remember when it came out and reading it, and you know. I was doing so much nodding, head nodding, and more in a realization. I was like, "Ah, oh, that's why yeah, we get that." Yeah. And you know, we're told. Well, to I, I, I'm glad you felt like that. I mean, that was what I felt sort of throughout the time that I was writing the book, and as the book was sort of coming coming in, 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 into focus, as it were, because it was a sort of series of aha moments for me that I was picking up by reading other things and thinking, that's why we think that's such a big deal measuring advertising recall. It's because yes. some guy thought of it back in the 1930s and made a lot of money out of selling, you know, recall testing. Um, <laughs> but there's always a story here. It's, it's not kind of, it's not rocket science and it's not set down in tablets of stone. These are all things that just happen to be fashionable at some point. Yeah. Um, and, and and then sort of stuck around because nobody ever thought to stop and question how useful they might be. And and it's where you learn, you where where or when you learn your trade. I think it, those models can kind of stick in your head. Like you might have a really influential, you know, planner or creative director in your in your life that kind of you know makes you think this is the way advertising works. And so for me, the book was that realization of. That is our way. Some advertising can work, you know. That uh, so I found it interesting just to think about those kind of assertions and and why, you know, my views of advertising might be a certain way. And um, so yeah, it's, it's no, that that was exactly it. I mean, it was about trying to uncover those unspoken, unrecognized, deep assumptions that we make. Because if we don't recognize the assumptions we're making, we cannot criticize them. Yeah, we are we are slaves to them in effect. So I just wanted to make them explicit and then of course people have the choice of saying well that's right or it's wrong or, or more accurately this is useful here but it's actually not so useful here um, and I think um, that, that, that was that was what I was hoping to achieve with that book so the book was a, a moderate success I hope um, and but my mind went on sort of revolving around the same subjects and although I don't think I've really changed my mind in any significant respect since I wrote The Anatomy of Humbug, there were certain themes that seemed to be coming more salient, and I, I, I wanted to say more about them. Yeah. Um, and that was particularly the idea that advertising, first of all, works by mental associations, that very simple Ehrenberg-Bass theory, which I think many people now, you know, regard as, as viable and, and, and useful. But although, I mean, they've done terrific work, it seemed to me there was not so much that the Ehrenberg Bass people had to say about, so exactly how do you create mental availability? And it seemed to me that the missing link here was between the idea of the rather dry idea of mental availability and the simple observable fact that so much advertising actually looks like popular entertainment, looks like popular culture. Yeah. You know, it is full of song and dance, it's full of humour, it's full of cartoons, it's full of talking animals, it's full of celebrities, you know, all this sort of vulgar stuff which um, dates right back to the great P.T. Barnum, uh, the first, you know, great 19th century publicist and creator of fame. And... Um, and that's another important word that started to become more salient for me, fame. Because it, yeah. it's not a word that 
historically has been used very much in advertising agencies. You know, it's too much. It's too much like show business. It's too, um, it's too common. It's too vulgar. And perhaps it's too sort of unpredictable. Mm. You know, it's just about being famous. It's, it's got to be more than that. You know, we have to be on a mission to sort of give people serious information and so forth. And yet very often it is about fame. And I think fame is, is a more sort of popular and different way of framing um, a lot of what mental availability is about. Yeah. Um, I mean, there is one difference in the sense that mental availability immediately, I mean, that just suggests something that's going on in one person's mind. You know, does this appear in my brain when I, when I think about this, this particular need? But fame, I think, is a bigger thing than that because it's not just a psychological thing. Do I know this? It's actually a very social thing. Things are famous when lots of people know about them yeah. and they keep them famous by talking about them and sharing them and, you know, wearing them and, you know, getting involved with them. So yeah. I think fame, fame is in some ways a sort of, it's a looser, but it's also a bigger and perhaps in some ways a more practical concept for mental availability. Uh, and yet, looking back through my career, although I had worked on um, or been associated with a lot of campaigns that were famous and which made brands famous, I didn't remember that we had often used the word fame. You know, one did not often write a brief that said it's to make the brand famous. Um, yeah. Uh, that wasn't even the start point, you know, and you could then go on and say, how are we going to make the brand famous, perhaps? But, you know, this this, this just seems somehow too too easy for people to want to, to want to assess it. So anyway, this was what led me to, um, to producing the more recent book that came out last year. No, this year, this year. No, last year. The last year, year 21, yeah. Yeah, we're, yeah it's, it's about 12 months old, so yes. Um, things have gone, as I say, a bit of a blur since the yes. first lockdown. But yeah, I mean, lockdown first of all gave me the time to finish the book off, which was a sort of one of its one of its many hidden benefits, to be honest, apart yeah. from all the bad stuff. Um, so I, I finished it towards the end of 2020, and I published it early 2021. The book is called "Why Does the Peddler Sing." Um, and I'm indebted to the great Rory Sutherland for that title because. I originally had sort of different ideas about the titles, um, but I sent an early draft of the whole manuscript to Rory, uh, who's one of the people I very much respect and thought I'd like to get his opinion yeah. on it. And he was, well, first of all, very enthusiastic, which was great because that was what I wanted to hear at that point. But he also picked up on this phrase that was just, um, a bit of the text at one point, why does the peddler sing? He said, you could call this book, why does the peddler sing? Yeah. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I think that's a pretty good title. So, so that was how it ended up. Um, so it might be worth talking a tiny bit about the peddler just to give a flavour. I was exactly, I was, about, I was about to ask. Where that book is yeah. going. Um, I mean, in the process of writing a book, I'm, I'm, I'm not always terribly sort of, disciplined or systematic about it, but I do find there's a lot of serendipity happens along the way that okay. I happen to be reading something apparently quite unrelated. And I think, ah, oh, actually, that has a lot to do with what I'm trying to say about advertising. And I was rereading the Shakespeare play, The Winter's Tale, okay. um, which I hadn't read probably since I was a, an English student 50 years ago. 
but I, I, for some reason, got curious about The Winter's Tale and I read The Winter's Tale. And in Act Four of The Winter's Tale, there is a scene where um, a, a character turns up at a country house and uh, he's actually a bit of a con man, but he's disguised as a peddler. And, um, and the servant runs in and says, oh, master, if you did but hear the peddler at the door, you know, and, and just enthusing about how wonderful this guy is and say, you must bring him in, you know, you must yeah. bring him in. And I thought, well, this is interesting. Um, a peddler is someone who goes from door to door selling stuff. But classically, he's also an entertainer. You know, he will sing songs, he will tell jokes, he probably wears funny clothes, um, you know, whatever else. And it led to this question, why, why is he doing this? Yeah. You know, is it just about attracting attention, uh, which would be a sort of a classic advertising trope? And, you know, well, yes, probably it is, but that's only the very start of it. It's not just about attracting attention. It's about actually sort of starting to create a relationship. It's, it's about how do I get myself invited into the house, you know, and yeah. maybe they're not going to invite me in just because I've come around with a tray of stuff to sell. But, you know, think yourself back to the Middle Ages when you don't have um, any other form of entertainment other than somebody who walks around from house to house singing. You know, somebody turns up who can sing a song and sing a song well, you'd be very tempted to say, come on in, you know, and bid him approach singing, as the character says in The Winter's Tale. Um, so it gets you into the house. And I think it's then even, it's much more than that, because it's not just about getting into the house, but it, once you're in the house, it's putting people into a frame of mind where they're more inclined to buy stuff. Yeah. You know, if you put a smart, I mean, it goes straight back to what I was told by Martin Bowes all those decades oh, previously. Yeah, so exactly. It's like you invite yourself into somebody's living room, you put a smile on their face, and then they like you, and then they're more likely to buy your ribbons or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. So this, this very simple principle, which I'd never really heard spelled out anywhere, I think, apart from what Martin used to say to us rather whimsically all those years ago. So that is why does the peddler sing? And I thought that provides a sort of key to why is so much advertising, you know, which is supposed to be about communicating this, um, you know, single-minded sales proposition with reasons why and <laughs> reasons to believe and support and all onions, this. Onions and wheels. Why are advertising that, that, that's ostensibly doing that? What what you actually see is a cartoon of a of a of a of a polar bear singing like Elvis Presley, or some chimpanzees who are riding around on bicycles dressed as Frenchmen, or you know, all this sort of apparent nonsense um, is actually it's not just incidental. Yeah, it's absolutely crucial to what makes a certain type of advertising successful, and it's particularly crucial to what builds famous brands. And building famous brands is probably, in the long term, the most valuable contribution that advertising makes to businesses. So the, the rest of the book then sort of fell into place around that. It was a kind of extended meditation with a lot of historical um, stories in it um, yeah, yeah. about the nature of um, fame, the nature of entertainment and building fame, the resemblances between brands and celebrities, um, and um, 
uh, and that's that's what that book is all about, really. Yeah, and I love in the book um, you you have the story of David Beckham's sarong, and <laughs> you know related to fame as well. I really enjoyed reading that and kind of your how you tied that into you know. I guess how he got away with it, but why it was important, to, you know, and the kind of the impact it had. Well, that's right. I mean, I, I, again, one thing sort of led to another. Um, there's a very a wonderful uh, lecture written by the great Jeremy Bullmore about 20 years ago now, which is called Posh Spice and Persil. Right. At the time, you know, Victoria Beckham was still one of the Spice Girls. Um, and it's one of the few places where I found somebody talking explicitly about fame as a sort of key ingredient of what advertising does before before I got on that particular train of thought. Yeah. As always, of course, it was Jeremy Bullmore who said it said it first and probably said it better. But his title, Posh Spice and Purcell, was based on a, a quote from Victoria Beckham's autobiography, which had come out, you know, a, a, earlier that year, I think. And she, she said something like, you know, I always said that I wanted to be a, as famous as Purcell Automatic. Yeah. And Jeremy was fascinated by this. And he said, you know, why does she choose? She doesn't choose Madonna or yeah. you know, <laughs> Elton John or, or the Beatles um, or Cliff Richard. She chooses um, a brand of washing powder. Um, so that quote sort of triggered him to thinking about the, the, the things that celebrities and brands have in common. And, you know, I mean, yes, the success of Victoria Beckham or David Beckham is in many ways very similar to the success of a successful brand. They are successful because they have this great mental availability and because they maintain this mental availability. And, of course, it's it's not surprising, therefore, that they, they, they have maintained that brand over the last 20 years despite the fact that during that time, Victoria has done very little singing. Yeah. David has played very little football. You know, they've actually gone on to a stage of, you know, tr- transposing their original sources of fame into something quite different. And, uh, I mean, they are in a sense. I mean, it's it's, it's a famous um, quote from Daniel Borstin in the 1960s who rather sniffily said, you know, celebrity is someone who's, who's well-known for being well-known. But there's a certain truth in that, that once you are well-known, you know, you you can use that yes. to stay being well-known. And in a way, that's what brands do. You know, they, 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 they stay well-known because they are well-known. Um, and that's why brands have such power and longevity. Once you've achieved that status, you can maintain it. And it's very difficult to, to sort of rebuild it once you lose it. So they've, they've actually been very successful at that. And uh, and also they, they they manage it in many ways as a business. You know? Yeah. Yes. It, not only they have a company called Beckham Brand Holdings, literally that, you know, that word, I think, Beckham Brand Holdings. Um, they, they make many millions a year out of it. And in fact, David Beckham has just sold a chunk of that company to somebody else, so he's cashed in on his phone. So it, it, they have literally, in a way, turned themselves into, into a brand. But, but um, that was what led me to sort of thinking about, well, how did Victoria Beckham maintain her fame and, and David Beckham? Um, and that's why that chapter sort of went off 
on that particular tangent, um, as you say, and I, I, it was interesting that I, I found another book that had been written earlier um, by, by someone from Interbrand who sort of, and he did this classic thing, which, which most people in advertising and marketing do, of sort of interpreting everything that David Beckham has done as a very clever part of a, a sort of grand strategy. Yeah, yeah. Or a clever strategy that was all true to sort of some some brand onion or brand essence that they decided in advance, and I kind of thought I'm not very convinced by that because when you look at it, so many of the things that happen um, they're kind of fortuitous. But what matters is the way that you know the public respond to that, the way the media respond to that, and the way in which then you know. The Beckhams made use of that to move on. So, I mean, the Saron was was the sort of example of that, if you like, that you could present this as you know, David Beckham sort of has a very long-term cunning plan to say, I'm not going to play football forever. I should become a fashion icon. So I'm going to make sure I'm seen going out wearing a Saron because I'll get lots of press coverage. Now, I mean, I can't promise that that never happened. But I don't sort of see a very strong reason to believe that it ever yeah. happened. Um, certainly, because according to Victoria's own account of this, it happened entirely by accident. Yeah. You know, he and his mates had just bought one of these sarongs because they'd been to Indonesia or somewhere, and it was a hot night on the French Riviera, and they put it on to go out for dinner, and they weren't even particularly anticipating that anybody would notice. But of course because they're surrounded by paparazzi, somebody photographed it, yeah. and it appears on the front page of the sun or whatever it did. And, yeah. and, and so it goes on. Um, so I, I, I kind of another thing I do in the book is I, I, I'm rather heavily sceptical about all these ideas that brands are built around brand essences, whether you call them brand onions or brand, yes. or, you know, brand, um, brand pillars or brand balloons or whatever you like. Um, I don't think that's really how it happens. And I think um, that that all offers a huge amount of sort of intellectual post-rationalization at best, which which gives marketers a sort of illusion that they're somehow owning and being full control of these situations. Yeah. As what is actually much more important is that brands just continue to be interesting and they continue to be entertaining and they continue to give people something to talk about. So actually, that's much more important than being consistent. The one area where it is really important to be consistent um, is in the use of what Ehrenberg Bass, I think, have, have helpfully called distinctive assets, yeah, yeah. Uh, which, uh, which is a wide category of, 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 of Images and, and sounds and so on, you know, which can include logos, colors, very powerfully, um, say, characters, um, uh, slogans, jingles, songs, melodies, um, you know, situations, etc. etc. They, they come in many, many different flavors, um, but um, distinctive assets are really important. And I, so I then, after the Beckhams, the next chapter, I go on to say, well, that's, maybe that's true of celebs, but it's not true of brands. And I just go to, to look at the early history of Coca-Cola, yeah. which is quite, you know, well written up elsewhere. And I just say, how does Coca-Cola grow? I mean, 
there is never any suggestion that it's built around a brand essence. It's not actually that consistent. It changes from one thing to another very quickly in its early history. Um, It does all sorts of different things. But everything it does, it tends to build distinctive assets and it then stays with them very tenaciously and indeed defends them in an intellectual property sense very vigorously as well. So that, you know, things that happened, again, very fortuitously like that, that script logo was literally written by one of the sort of founders with his dick pen. Right. Right in the very early days. It was nobody actually designed it. It was just, I've written Coca-Cola. It looks like this. It stays like that. Um, and, uh, you know, later on, the design of the classic bottle um, and the story of that is quite quite interesting that, uh, you know, they did decide they wanted a distinctive bottle for yeah. exactly the right reasons. We want a bottle that will be recognisable. We, most importantly, we want a bottle that nobody else can copy without us being able to sue them. So they want a very, very distinctive bottle. Um, and they asked a number of bottlers to come up with designs and one bottler went off to the library looking for some sort of reference to what does a coca or a cola uh, bean look like and couldn't find one, but by mistake found a cocoa bean and based the bottle on a cocoa bean. So that, that bottle is, um, you know, and people read all sorts of things into it. It's feminine, you know. It's, yes, of course. Yeah. Um, it, but actually, it, 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 it's, it's, it's based on a picture of a cocoa bean, which has nothing whatever to do with coca-cola at all so so uh, i think these what what happens with brands is much more and indeed celebrities is things happen often quite randomly or fortuitously um but those then in some ways that's what makes them particularly powerful distinctive assets because if you build a distinctive asset around some meaning yes probably going to be built around the same kind of meaning as all your competitors. And therefore it's going to be less distinct. Yes. yes. So uh, joy, I mean, joy or happiness. Or, again, you know. Aaron Bass of, 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 of the Jenny Romania, Professor Jenny, Jenny Romania of the Aaron Bass Institute has written a wonderful book about this, yes. a, a very, you know, much more learned book than anything I, I want to, 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 to write myself, but it's called building distinctive brand assets. And it's, it's, I think should be a sort of classic for, for marketers, but that's where the consistency of a brand comes in. Um, and apart from that, I think you can all, it almost doesn't matter. I mean, yes. that's a extreme view and uh, that there may be ways that one wants to qualify that. But I mean, on the whole, it is more interesting. It is more important to do something that's kind of interesting and new, even if it's, it's breaking new ground or apparently sort of going off the tangent. Than yeah. it is sticking to some some rigid formula and, and, and being boring. And with distinctive assets, I mean, not easy to do, but you know, it requires investment, and you know, but once you, as you say, once you have them, then it allows you to have fresh consistency in your creative. And like, if you look at the Beckhams as a not to make this all about them, but you know, you think about their kind of public persona, you know, I, I was talking to John Goldstone about the Walker's Crisp, Walker Sensation launch, where it was all about posh crisps and posh spice was the face of it. And Gary Lineker was pretend uh, David Beckham in, the, in that ad. Like she, They would never do that now. 
know what I mean? But they've allowed themselves evolve. Yes, yes. True to some of their, you know, I guess, kind of core distinct assets, like David Beckham's still known as a footballer. No, they, 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 it's, it's totally sort of uh, opportunistic in a way. I yeah. mean, um, the only question is, you know, will people find this attractive and interesting in some way? Uh, and will they know it's us? Those are the only I mean, you, not in the book, but um, I happen to be in the agency when this all happened. Um, it's interesting also that the Gary Lineker campaign for yeah. Walker's Brisks was equally kind of um, unplanned. Yeah. In uh, We won the Walker's account back in whenever it was. It's been about 1990. I mean, it's a long time ago. Um, and we were working on the, cam- the campaign. And we were, I think John Webster was trying to develop some sort of a campaign with a, with a duck that was going to be the sort of the character for walkers. For some reason, it was taking a long time and it wasn't quite right and it was dragging on and on. And the client said, I've, I've really got to get an ad out quickly, you know, so just do something. And somebody had this idea for, um, you know, a quick sort of tactical ad that and they thought, that was based on the idea of somebody who we all thought was Mr. Nice Guy stealing stealing crisps because they were irresistible. And so they, they looked at a list of people for who would be Mr. Nice Guy and they decided Gary Lineker would be a good one. He was quite well known and he was sort of known as being terribly nice. Um, so this ad was bashed off very quickly and it was meant to be a one-off. Right. It was never it was never intended to be the long-term campaign while they were working on this duck or whatever it was. Um, and yet that ad was so successful, you know, everybody did the intelligent thing at that point and said, maybe we could do another ad with Gary Lineker, because that yeah. one went very well. And you know, Gary Lineker has been associated with that brand now for 30 years or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, quite extraordinary. Um, so this is, this is how distinctive assets often, often occur. You know, it's not so much a case of, um, creating them as nurturing them. You know, once you find something that goes, see how far you can stay with it, see how much more you can do with it, because something that captures the public imagination in that way is much more easy to turn into a distinctive asset than something that you've just kind of formulated in an abstract way in an office. And you, you cannot ram it down people's throats. This is, this is the thing yes. about fame. You know, I mean, it's not easy to become famous. Um, if everybody who, everybody who plays a guitar w- wants to become famous, but very few of them do, you know, um, and what makes the difference? In some ways, it's it's intangible and it's unpredictable. Of course, you know, marketers don't like to be told that, but it's and, it's the yeah. sad truth. Yeah. But I mean, the corollary of that is, you know, um, once you come across something that has that kind of magic to it, then for goodness' sake, make the most of it. Stay with it. And don't sort of chuck it out the window and say, oh, yes, you know, we're going to do something different next year because I'm sure we can do something better. You better, know? yeah. You have to kind of trust that, go with it. And and it's, I think, great CMOs that come, in, that come into a role, um, you know, 
uh, and don't change. You, you know, that they come in and say, this, you know, I'm looking at the distinctive assets that we have. I'm going to evolve this one, hold on to this one, you know, and, and not come in and go, I'm new, therefore my stamp is new agency, new creative, you know, and... and well, that happens it. so often, and it's, it is, it is um, it's frequently disastrous. I mean, I'm sure we've all seen examples of this. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I've told that, um, yeah, I mean, I can't think of a recent one, but, um, well, I mean, I, I mean, I wrote a piece that uh, you can find it on LinkedIn, I think, where I sometimes write articles and publish them because it's easy to do um, about um, there's a, a UK hotel brand called um, Premier Inn yeah. and um, they actually had a, a very successful campaign well, it featured Lenny Henry started about <laughs> 10 years ago um, Lenny Henry as the presenter and some of the ads were good some of the ads were not very good but on the whole it was a very successful campaign because everybody knew it was Lenny Henry. Yep. Everybody associated, uh, they liked Lenny Henry. They associated him with Premier Inns um, in, in a very sort of, in a market where, you know, people still go and stay at a Premier Inn and think they've stayed as a travelodge. You know, the, people get these things mixed up. Yeah. He was beginning to do, do something for this. Um, and then just as it was really beginning to take off, uh, a new marketing director came in. <laughs> And, of course, predictably, the first thing they did was fire the agency. <laughs> and the new agency, of course, are not going to – the new agency do not win the account by saying, we'd like to stay with Lenny could, Henry, yeah. chuck Lenny Henry out the window. They do something completely different. And they faff around doing a lot of very, very clever, clever adverts, um, which don't really achieve very much at all. <laughs> um, and then eventually another marketing director comes in and fires that agency <laughs> – and yeah. then they appoint another agency, and they've now got an agency who are um, using Lenny Henry as a voiceover. Um, I mean, maybe maybe Lenny Henry doesn't want to do it anymore. I don't know. You know, there's always yeah. possibilities, in which case the, the, the voiceover might be the next best thing. But, you know, um, unless it's that, I think it's it's a sort of sad saga of, they had something great, and they they just threw it threw it away for no for no reason at all. And we see this happen so often. Um, and as you say, it's the mark of a truly great CMO that they come in, see something that's working, and say, "We'd be mad to get rid yeah. of a particular okay. aspect of it." Yeah, hold on to this for dear life. Um, you talked a bit about, and sorry, I keep, it's funny as you're talking through a lot of these things, I keep thinking back to the honey monster. Yeah, uh, it's, it's an incredible thing that that happened when it did without all the vernacular around some of the stuff we're talking about, like distinctive assets and fame and like that campaign ran for years and years. I'd be getting Yeah. There. I mean, before we, before we had that phrase distinctive assets, which I mean, may have been created by Ehrenberg Bass, but I, I, hasn't been around for a long time. But we did actually have a language for talking about this. Um, I mean, we would we would often talk about campaignable property, brand properties was a, was a phrase that we'd used yeah. quite a lot. Um, I mean, some people would call them brand, brand ideas or big ideas. Big ideas, yeah. Um, which is a, a phrase that I, I like to avoid because it can mean so many different things and very often does mean completely different things. 
I mean, another point I make in passing in the book is, you know, David Ogilvy is always quoted endlessly by people about thing about unless your ad- advertising has a big idea, it will pass like a ship in the night. I wonder what David Ogilvy actually meant by that phrase, a big idea. So I went back to his books and I found all the examples that he had of big ideas. And all the examples he gives of big ideas are things like, um, you know, the eye patch and the Hathaway shirt ad, uh, the Pepperidge Farm horse and wagon. Yeah. Um, in every case, it is what Ogilvy means by a big idea, or it's a slogan, or it's a format like the American Express campaign, Do You Know Me? Um, in every case, it is something that um, Jenny Romaniuk would now have no hesitation in labelling a distinctive asset. It's not an abstract thing. So, you know, I think idea is, a, is not a great word for it. Yeah, um, yeah. Although it, it's, a, it's a word with a very long history in, in advertising, particularly in the US. Um, but it's a word that gives rise to so much confusion because people think an idea is something abstract and conceptual, yeah. whereas what Ogilvy is talking about and what really matters is something tangible. It's something, you know, distinctive because it looks different. It, it has that specific um, uniqueness about it. Um, and that is a completely different thing. So we used to talk about brand properties, campaignable brand properties, um, and that was, you know, what we were before. We also just did it, you know, kind of instinctively. That's, that's the like, thing. This is what advertising is all about. You create a character. You, you, you know, you create Tony the Tiger. I mean, when uh, uh, the trouble is, this all then became progressively more and more unfashionable in creative departments. Right. Creative departments stopped wanting to do. First of all, they stopped wanting to do jingles. Then they stopped wanting to do slogans. Then they stopped wanting to do characters. They stopped wanting to do anything that looked like an ad. It had been done. Um, right. yeah. There is a reason why ads looked like that, because that's actually what tends to work. So they progressively boxed themselves into a corner doing, doing stuff. I mean, the way the history of advertising is told in creative departments, it's like everything was shit. And then along came Bill Bernbach and did stuff that was wonderful. And now all we want to do is stuff that's like what Bill Bernbach did. Now, I mean, Bill Bernbach did some quite good ads, but actually Bill Bernbach was very, very bad at creating distinctive assets. Um, I wish the historians of advertising would celebrate much more somebody like Leo Burnett, you know, who created the Jolly Green Giants and Tony the Tiger and the yeah. Pillsbury Doughboy. These are things that still exist today. And these, yeah. are, these are things that still have power and have had power over many, many decades and have built brands. Um, but the, the reverse is true. These are actually held up as examples of the bad old advertising yeah. that we don't want to do anymore. Yeah, it's um, historic. So, I mean, yeah, uh, there's only one problem with that. The bad old advertising that you don't want to do anymore is actually the kind of advertising that works and still works and will continue to work, whatever media you're operating in it will work online it will work you know in social media it will work on tiktok it will be a principle that will apply you know in every medium we have and in the ones that we haven't invented yet yes yeah distribution will change but 
creativity, you know, those core elements. Like, it's funny when you even mention things like the Green Giant, I can hear the jingle, you know, and so that's, I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. You know, that's that mental network of yes. associations, which is, which is very powerful, powerful, very hard to shift and very distinct, distinctive, you know. And if someone offered you it, you would pay a lot of money for it. You know, if somebody said to you, I can give you this, that in 30 years time, mm. some guy in Dublin would still remember that jingle in his head, just the mere words of the jolly green giant. You, you'd right. say, yeah. I, I will pay you how much, <laughs> you know, here's the checkbook. Um, I did want to ask you about um, one of the one of the campaigns. And you talk, you've talked a bit about kind of, I guess, maybe opportunity and fortuitousness and accidental, you know, seeing the opportunities. And the Rowan Atkinson Barclay card campaign is, I remember you talking through that. And I am I fair in saying that would be a good example of some of those things? It, oh, it is. And I mean, the, 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 the first... The first two chapters of why did the pet why does the yeah. peddler sing are actually a, a sort of exhaustive account of uh, an examination of that particular campaign, um, which, which is wonderful. It, and I and I would say if any, for anyone listening, if you don't know Rowan Atkinson Barclay Card, I, I don't mind you pause go go watch it because you're gonna it's gonna make this even more interesting. Yeah, it's, a wonderful you, campaign. it's quite easy to find all of the films I think on YouTube. Yeah. If you just just Google Rowan Atkinson Barclay card, I mean, the, the, this was a campaign made in the early 1990s, and it was, as far as we can tell, it was it was very successful. Yeah. Um, I mean, it certainly won a, a gold in the IPA's Advertising Effectiveness Award, which is which is kind of not not an easy thing to do. Um, and I mean, I think there are so many sort of aspects of that story which which are worth telling because I, I, I wish there were more accounts of how things really happen in advertising rather than how they're meant to happen. Yeah. Because the way it's meant to happen, you know, is something like you, you, you invite a lot of agencies to pitch and they all come up with their campaigns for the pitch and then you choose the campaign that you like best and the agency you like best and then you run that campaign and it's a great success and that's why you made such a, a great effort and spent so many months and years of your lives, you know, going through this ridiculous pitch process. I mean, what happens in most cases, I would say, is that the campaign that won the pitch um, either never runs or it runs and it's useless and it soon gets changed. Um, it's not a good way of developing successful campaigns. I mean, uh, that's one aspect of it. You know, uh, I think it would be much more sensible. Appoint, uh, appoint an agency you can really work with, work with them to create advertising, um, and then, you know, you may not get it right, but, you know, you've got a much better chance of getting it right, and then you, you stay with them until you do get it right, um, unless you think they're useless, and in which case you shouldn't have appointed them anyway. Um, but what happened with, with Barclay Card was, uh, you know, we had a sort of an absolute model pitch process and it went on for months and we were all over them and we, we talked to everybody at Barclay Card and we understood the business inside out and we did a you know, massive document full of data and we, we came up with a, a sort of so-called strategy um, and an end line and... Uh, and an ad which was sort of 
I describe it in the book, I won't go into it now, an ad that was totally unlike anything that, that actually did appear in the end. Yeah. Um, we, they, they approved it. They, they chose us because they liked us, but they also liked our campaign. Obviously, that was why we bothered to do a campaign. Um, and then we sort of settled down to make the ad. And then we found there were a few problems with the ad. We then got around to researching the ad and found people didn't like it very much. Big um, problem. <laughs> but the researchers... The researchers wanted to be helpful, you know, positive. And right. To, you know, you've got to chuck this. Anyway, we probably wouldn't have listened to them if they had said that. They said, I'm sure we can just get this right. We'll tweak it a bit. So we went on trying to rewrite the ads, and they, they didn't get better. They just sort of went on getting worse, actually. And we also found that, you know, we couldn't afford to make it. It was, it was a very high production. Okay. Number, you know, but it was to actually get production quotes that was coming in like sort of millions of pounds and things completely ridiculous. Um, and we also found that the ITCA or whatever they were called in those days, the, you know, the copy, the copy clearance yeah. people who approved all the TV ads, they had a number of big problems with, with the whole idea because um, it involved people cutting up all their competitive, all their yeah. other credit cards and saying, this is the only credit card you'll ever need. So you can't do that, you know. You can't be seen to be cutting up other credit cards and you can't be seen to be throwing them off the tops of buildings because it's littering. So, so we had all these massive problems. And it, but but we, because we'd been appointed on the strength of this great pitch-winning campaign, neither the agency nor the client would ever sort of, nobody would ever put their hands up and say, hang on, I think we should just jump this and start again. It was absolutely like the classic group think Vietnam War situation. Nobody was going to do it until until it was an absolute crisis, and the absolute crisis only really came when we were about a month to going on air, and we didn't have anything that worked. Um, so at this point, we kind of went, oh, "Can we do something else?" At the last minute, and so another campaign was written, and then just before I went out to to do some a bit of research on that campaign. They said, what if that doesn't work? We'd better have another one. Um, and, and somebody had this daft idea about Rowan Atkinson. Um, so we bunged that in as well. And actually, even then, that, that Rowan Atkinson script were, were totally unlike the ones that actually appeared. They were, they were sort of um, Rowan Atkinson doing something completely different. They weren't actually that funny. So, I mean, I came back from the research and I, I said, actually, these don't work. Neither of these work. The only thing I can utterly salvage from this research is people say, you should use Rowan Atkinson because he's funny, whatever he does. Um, now, I mean, th this was not honestly much to have learned after six months' work. And, I mean, it would have been understandable if the client sort of lost their I, rag <laughs> I mean, partly because they, they had no alternative because they really had to be on air. And we did a, we were able to offer them enough of a way out we said look if we can get Rowan Atkinson we can do something with Rowan Atkinson that'll work um, so luckily we could get Rowan Atkinson and even more luckily Rowan Atkinson had had a really good idea about the character he wanted to play which was basically the character that later became Johnny English, English yeah, um, yeah. so I mean he brought all that to the party so I mean actually what happened here you know we've been faffing around for six months or more doing a sort of classic advertising, thinking about strategies and propositions, blah, blah, blah. And then when we finally got into a sort of crisis situation, 
the thing that walked in off the street and saved us was an entertainer yeah. um, with an idea for some entertainment. You know, the peddler walked in singing, go. if you yeah, like. Yeah. And, uh, and it worked brilliantly. I mean, you know, yes, I mean, it's an ad. It talked about the product. It talked about the benefits of the product. But first and foremost, it's a celebrity. Oh. And it's entertaining. And, and these ads are very funny. They're actually made by Rowan Atkinson and John Lloyd with the same sort of enthusiasm that they made, not the nine o'clock news or Blackadder. And, um, you know, they stand up alongside those series as as bits of entertainment for the most part. And that's why the campaign was a success. Yeah, they're highly entertaining. And not only do they stand up, I think, against, you know, his other comedic work that was on, you know, TV, broadcast TV, I guess, but I think change the product, they'd still be great ads today, you know, because uh, the product was obviously of its time. But I just think the entertainment value, phenomenal. Absolutely. I think, I think you know, people find them just as entertaining today. There may be yeah. one or two bits of supposed political incorrectness about them, but that's, um, you know, that's another matter. We won't go into that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what's interesting about that, I, I think, you know, maybe ties in a bit about like the creative brief. So obviously there was a creative brief um, and, you know, I think you have, I'd love to hear your views on kind of the role of the creative brief. I think in, in maybe it was in anatomy, you kind of say the creative brief should be really the basis for a conversation rather than kind of an order passed to the kitchen. Yeah. Well, did I say that? Yes. I mean, I think I'm, I'm probably... <laughs> rather more more skeptical than, than that suggests. Um, yeah, I, I think there is such a lot of nonsense talked about creative briefs. Uh, and I mean, this is this is something that if, if I write another book, there will probably be a section in it about creative briefs. One interesting thing about creative briefs, which are now regarded as, you know, such, such hugely important things that agencies endlessly bang on about, you know, can we write better creative briefs and creative departments endlessly say we want better creative briefs? I mean, up until the 19, late 1960s, I would say, I can find no reference anywhere to a creative brief. And I don't believe it existed. Um, I mean, if you read the stories of how campaigns were made in the 50s from something like Martin Mayer's um, mm-hmm. Madison Avenue USA, or you read the accounts of how DDB in the early days used to work, you know, how the, the great Volkswagen campaigns were made, mm. um, how the Hertz would try harder. There is no suggestion anywhere that anybody was writing anything for the creative group. Not at all. Yeah. Um, agencies worked in a quite different way. And as far as I can tell, it was sort of, and one of the reasons there was no such thing as a credit brief is there was nobody to write a creative brief because right. there were no account planners. Planners, right? And yeah. The growth of um, the growth of the credit brief has gone hand in hand with the sort of growth of account planning. And initially, you know, the growth of account planning I think was probably a good thing. Um, I think at some point it became much more questionable as to whether it was a good thing or not. Um, and um, you know, I'm very sceptical about the degree of importance that's attached to creative briefs. What it actually signifies 
is this kind of split of the advertising creative process into two chunks that are somehow separable. That there's the strategy here, and then there's the, 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 the creative work here. I don't think they are so separable. I mean, obviously, if you do have an account planner, I like to think that a good account planner can bring a lot of value to the creative process. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, because they will they will bring knowledge, they'll bring understanding of the consumer, they will bring a, a sort of perspective on linking the business to the consumer, all this sort of thing. But they, they, they can do all that. But actually, I don't think it's possible to know which particular aspects of that are going to lead to the campaign that you really want. Yeah. Um, in advance of writing the campaign, the two things are always... I mean, as, as um, my old colleague Ross Barr used to say, he's very kind of dancing together. And therefore, I think um, it is much more about dialogue. It's much more about dialogue. And I mean, that's how it used to work. Again, there's a description of how, how we worked on the Honey Monster campaign um, in, in the book, in the Pebbler book. Mm -hmm. And, you know, John Webster did not sort of want to get a written creative brief, or if he did, he wasn't terribly interested in it. He wanted to sit down and talk with the planner, and he was curious, and he'd ask them questions, and he'd say, you know, what are they like? What, what are they interested in? What, what do they think about breakfast cereals? What do they think about children? And, and they'd just sort of talk, and then something would come up, and John would go, mm, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. And then it would give him a sort of direction to go, I mean, how would it be if we did this? And then the planner might say, well, I'm not sure that's the right way because, because, because. You know, there's yep. a, a, an ongoing, it's like most things, <laughs> you know, yeah. it emerges out of a dialogue and eventually there's a direction and then you say, okay, let's pursue that direction and then you can maybe check out whether it's the right direction or not and so on. Um, and at some point, perhaps it's useful to write down what you think the direction is. And if you want to call that a creative brief or a strategy or something, that's fine. But I mean, it, it's 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 so dangerous and so deadly sometimes when you you know you write down a creative brief and you say, well, that's what it has to be like. Yes. Yes. I mean, if planners write their creative brief, they can show them to the client. The client fiddles with it. The client rubber stamps it, and then it's kind of set in stone. And then you can't change it. And actually, it has to be very flexible because as you as you pursue this creative process, you go, actually, that's what I said I wanted, but now I see it. It, it doesn't is. quite work. So we need to do this. So, you know, so many people want this to be a sort of linear process where one step follows another and there are no, there's no um, false steps. There's no, you know, and... You can call this trial and error and you can say, oh, well, efficiency means we want to avoid trial and error. But actually, if you use other language, I think you can see that what you are saying is we don't want any learning. We don't want any discovery. Yeah, um, yeah. And those are the things that are essential in a creative process. So I'm, I'm very, very skeptical about creative briefs. And whenever I look at a case history um, and whenever I actually find what was the authentic creative brief as opposed to one that maybe was written later to sort of post-rationalize yeah. and make a point. Um, you know, you see that there's a fairly sort of, a fairly loose connection at best often. I mean, another, another article I wrote recently and 
published on LinkedIn was about the Levi's campaign, the Levi's yes, Laundrette, yes. which was triggered by um, Nick Kamen dying last year. So I wrote something about the Laundrette, the 1985 commercial. And this is written up, uh, it, won, it won an IPA award. And that's quite useful because we, within that paper, we have a documentary record of yeah. the actual creative brief. And um, the creative brief is, is crap. I mean, it, it, it's flannel and it has nothing to do with the ad. And in fact, I got confirmation of this because there's another account of how this campaign was created, written by Sir John Hegarty himself in his right. book, See an Advertiser. And he says, when I read the creative brief, my heart sank. You know, I thought this was rubbish. And, I, I, and, and there's, there's one sort of tiny clue in the last line of the creative brief, a sort of throwaway thing about um, something like Levi's of the original gene or something like that, which doesn't even go very far. But, you know, it was, it was enough to be a sort of yeah. jumping off point. But, you know, this idea that the brief led to the ad, not so. I mean... The brief maybe represented where somebody was at, at point A, and you know you end up at point W, and an awful lot of things happened in between, yeah. which are which are not recorded and were not written down, uh, and could not be because it, it it had to grow, it had to emerge and evolve out of out of a sort of uh, collaborative uh, and sometimes argumentative process. Yeah, difficult. You know, it can be difficult. It can be challenging. It can be you know tiring but I, I agree with it you. nearly always is yes um <laughs> yeah um but you know some of the best relationships and stuff we've done i've been able to do in agencies or, or clients is when you have a really open relationship with either the agency or the client and you're able to have a conversation and say you know yeah i i see where you've gone but how about this and just build it because it is a process like it is a process that you should all everyone should be in, involved with and as yeah. you say if it's here's the brief i mean it. i recommend um towards the end of peddler i i recommend probably the only book with creativity in its title that i actually found sort of useful and not irritating um it is ed catmull's book creativity inc which is about how they work at, at pixar wonderful book. and i think how you know to create a film like Toy Story, um, you know, think about that process. Nobody sat down and wrote a creative brief for Toy yeah, Story yeah. and then turned it over to the creative people and said, get on with it. Um, you know, I mean, Toy Story evolves um, painfully, laboriously out of a huge amount of detail. Um, every step of the way, every shot, every detail, of characterization of, of how it looks, of how people talk, of what happens in the dialogue, of how the drama unfolds. Every detail of that is sort of, and it's not just done by one genius sitting down doing it, it's done by a team. So the yeah. team have to be able to work together. And it's clearly not a comfortable process, but they have protocols that say, you know, you have to be absolutely honest with each other and you have to listen to each other. And it's also, it's not enough just to say, oh, I don't like it. You have to say, that doesn't feel right to me because oh, you have yeah. to try and explain why. And then, you know, and as long as, I mean, people don't usually want to hear this stuff, but they have to hear it. They have to be able to stay in the room and reflect on it. And, you know, if you stay in the room 
eventually the answer will emerge. Yeah. I don't like it because... What happens in adages is, is, is so often not that. Yeah. People don't stay in the room. It's like, oh, well, if you don't like it like that, fuck off. You know, yeah, I'm yeah, like, throw the pen down, I'm out <laughs> um, And, um, you know, and clients do the same thing and, and agencies do the same thing, you know, if you don't like it. You know. Oh, I've seen it. People like but both, both sides storing but, but, you know, that is not the way <laughs> that anything gets made. We are... Just at, at time, actually, we've gone way over. So thank you. I'd love to end, uh, Paul, with just any tips that you would give somebody um, just in, in, in kind of an advertising marketing career, whether it's starting out or, or like me, you know, I don't know, how would I say, near mid, mid, middling to end, <laughs> but what kind of recommendations you'd give or advice? Um, well, apart from read my excellent books, um, <laughs> I would say just be very skeptical about so much of the sort of encrusted tradition of how advertising is supposed to be created. Um, so much of the, the whole structure and culture of advertising agencies, which is, which is way out of date, is built around a, a business model that, you know, ceased to exist about 40 years ago. Um, and indeed, you know, give up the idea that this is going to be a sort of neat and tidy, controllable process. Um, and think of it as having much more in common with show business and with entertainment. Um, you know, it, it is not a sort of follow these steps and something will pop out the other end. It is, we are, we have hired a stage and we are going to put on a show and we've got to put on a good show, otherwise there's no point. Um, think of it in those terms, um, if that's the appropriate terms. I mean, there, there are other situations where it's more appropriate to, to be totally Claude Hopkins and totally hard-nosed and say, actually, all this advertising really needs to do is to close a sale. Um, and I'm, I'm working with a client at the moment where I keep telling them that because they're doing stuff that looks lovely but doesn't sell anything. So, you know, be clear what the role for advertising is. But if, if the role for advertising is building a brand um, and, and not sort of selling direct, then you know, this is the way to think about it. Yeah. And I think, you know, your point about being skeptical, I think know the, know the models, know where they've come from and come out of, which again, like your books do brilliantly. I don't know if it's done anywhere else and, and not as well as, as you have, have done it in, in, in your books. And I think just having that healthy skepticism about, okay, like why, which part of this model might be right or like these models aren't right for what we need to do. And as you say, mm. if it's building the brand and then, then looking at fame. So Paul, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, I, I love your books. I say I, when I read particularly um, Anatomy, I was just going, oh God, I, I'm, I get this. I get this. I get why some of the things I thought were right were were maybe wrong or were right. You know, it was just a, a real education and Anatomy is a wonderful, uh, Pedler Singh is a wonderful follow-on to Anatomy. Well, thanks, Connor. Thanks very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I clearly did. 
Anatomy of Humbug had a profound impact on my views of advertising and the beliefs I held and really opened me up to having a more broad view. As Paul says, a healthy skepticism. You know, as Paul says, all the models are right and useful, so you need to think about how and when you apply them. I truly love Paul's views on the creative brief and the entire creative process. I think the giveaway is in that word. It's a process and should be treated like that. If you haven't read Paul's books, The Anatomy of Humbug and Why Does the Pedder Sing, I truly could not recommend them highly enough. So that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to That's What I Call Marketing. If you did enjoy it, please do share and add comments with your feedback and follow us on Twitter at That's underscore marketing. For me, Connor Byrne, until the next episode, take care. I'm off to get a bowl of sugar puffs.